Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. This week's episode is sponsored by Yellow Veil Pictures. Everyone needs to be heard. Following its launch at the Sundance Film Festival, Frida Kempf's suspenseful and claustrophobic Knocking is now available digitally and on demand. Starring Cecilia Miloco as Molly, who is just discharged from a psychiatric ward for a nervous breakdown and settling down in her new apartment. Knock, knock. Ominous knockings begin keeping her up at night as she tries to unsuccessfully locate the repetitive banging. As the knocks grow more desperate and one no one believes her complaints, Molly slowly spirals into paranoid behavior. See what the Hollywood reporter called gripping from first scene to last by heading over to knocking-film.com to watch the trailer and to find out more information about the release. That's knocking.film.com. Hey, Postmortem fans, producer Joe here to let you know that today's podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I can tell you, with all the stress that comes from working in the movie industry, that is something I ask myself every day. Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's easy you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it's professional therapy done securely online. There are a broad range of expertise which may not be locally available in many areas, and the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus, You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted daily like this one. Within two sessions, many of my issues have become clearer, and BetterHelp has provided me with comfort and confidence to move forward. Visit BetterHelp.com postmortem, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2,000 people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. And we have a special offer for postmortem listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash postmortem. That's betterhelp.com. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and welcome once again to the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And you ask through producer Joe, and Joe, I think you're feeling feisty today. I can just tell. Well, yeah, Mick. I mean, I think the whole town is feeling feisty. We're about to all go on strike. 
<laughs> yeah, not, well, not us we'll per see. Se, but our, our crews are about to go on strike. Well, um, we'll see what happens. I mean, I have to support what's going on. I've, I've oh, seen me, me too. Me too. I, 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 I full, fully on board. Do, do we, should we just give our fans and audiences a little context as to what's happening? Well, um, yeah, all of the, uh, all of the crew people, the IATSE members are um, potentially posed to strike mainly because of working hours working conditions are one thing and, and pay pay levels and fees and the like or another but the average shooting day is 12 hours long uh yep. tv and film has no problem extending those to 14 15 16 hours a day by paying overtime but is yep. overtime worth a life there's so many people who've fallen asleep at the wheel driving home because of these long long hours that aren't allowed legally in virtually any other business no, so no. it's a it's a very uh important uh negotiating point that they are working on yeah that. no we're, we're in a watershed moment i think i think what happened was the pandemic you know called for shorter shooting days and uh i think crews realize we can still get movies made and TV made with these shorter hours. And why are we killing ourselves when we can go home safely and see our families? You know? Uh, yeah. and, I mean, and I can't the say that I, were, I blame them. <laughs> the unions were formed because in the old days on the studio lots, the hours would be so crazy that crew members would actually sleep on the sound stages to be able to be alert in time for work the next morning. And yeah. so that was part of the foundation of the guilds and unions within IATSE, the Directors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild, all of the other um, artists and, and craftspeople within the, the motion picture industry. So they seem to have lost a little bit of their clout over the years and we're trying to reclaim it. Yeah, so as of this recording, uh, they, they're set to start striking on Monday, but they're negotiating throughout the weekends. So we'll, we'll hope that the studios will come to their senses and there won't be a strike, uh, but it might be a little slow around Hollywood the next couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. But you know what is not slow, Mick? Is our mailbag, and it is filled to the brim with lots of good questions and lots of crafty screenwriting questions this week. Um, uh, so we're writer centric so this episode, eh? a little bit, yeah, with 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 some sprinkling of uh, John Carpenter and Halloween stuff. So shall well, we dive in? Play enough, yeah. Let's do it. All right. Uh, Mark asks, in your opinion. Why do you think Avco Embassy went out of business? You were at Avco Embassy a long time, Nick, during publicity. What do you, what do you think uh, was their, their you know, because they had such a rise, what, what led to uh, their downfall? Well, Joseph E. Levine created Avco Embassy Pictures and, and did the Hercules movies that he imported from Italy. And those were Avco Embassy Pictures. Um, and then uh, they got classier fare. Uh, but the Avco Embassy that we are all familiar with is when they were at their peak under Bob Ramey, releasing movies like uh, John Carpenter's Escape from New York and The Fog, and Joe Dante's The Howling, David Cronenberg's The Brood. Uh, well, no, that wasn't Avco Embassy. David Cronenberg's uh, movie for them was Scanners. 
So this was at a period, 1980, 81, where they were kind of the kings of the genre. Yep. They did not go out of business. They were bought first by Nelson Entertainment. And they it just was a long string of acquisitions where they were consumed by the corporate entities that that took them over. So they were just absorbed. And conglomeration strikes yeah, again. Yeah, it just disappeared in that way. They just the name and I don't know who controls those Avco embassy titles from their golden era, but um, they're, it's a nightmare of rights issues right now because okay. of all the different owners. Yeah. It seems, it seems that way. Um, but, uh, but they gave us some, some really uh, amazing genre films and, and you were there for the heyday and uh, it goes to show you that it's not, not the, the brand label that makes a movie. It's the people behind it. So it's true, but there, there was a very specific philosophy at that company of working with genre filmmakers and working with really good ones and trying to do put out the best genre movies that they could and that was their bread and butter for a couple of years uh, worked you know starting with things like uh, Don Coscarelli's Phantasm and then going through Carpenter Cronenberg and and Dante it's a uh, strategy that still pays off for some producers, some smart savvy producers. So, yeah, well, look uh, at Bumhouse. They are the that's, new. That's uncle. who I was thinking of. <laughs> All right. Let's get into these writing questions. Uh, Jace Marzigs writes, as an up and coming screenwriter who has made many friends in the horror filmmaking community, is it generally frowned upon to ask those friends in the industry to pass along scripts or even to read them and provide notes. I've been very lucky the last few years to know and have befriended several people I've looked up to, but I'm not yet at a co-worker, so to speak, status. And I don't want to cross any lines by asking favors like uh, that and becoming that guy. Is there ever a good time to ask, hey, could you maybe do me a solid? That is a really big ask, and it's a much bigger ask than it appears. And the best answer to that, Josh Olson, a few years ago, wrote a brilliant article called, No, I Will Not Read Your Fucking Screenplay. Because after years of being asked for his input, because he's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, among other things, People don't really want to hear any criticisms or notes or or recommendations. They only want to know that you loved it. And first of all, taking two or three hours to read a script, and then how many hours more to put thought and notes into it and coming up with that, it's a lot of work. And it's a big ask. It's It's a lot of time to ask for someone whose profession is writing and working with that material. So especially if you're not close to them, you know, um, it's, it's a really tough thing to do and people do regret it a little because in most cases, people don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear, Oh, this is great. I can't wait to get it to so-and-so, but being a gatekeeper, I can't tell you how many people have tried to get material to Stephen King through me. Sure. I'm not his agent. I'm not his gatekeeper. And I, I won't recommend material to him because that's not my job. And our friendship is worth more to me than that. 
And well, a, a true friend will gladly do that. Um, but to be someone who has only met someone and asking them for a favor of that size is, is a really tough ask. And, and it's not very considerate. I think, I think the, the, the best practical answer we can give Jace is, you know, if you have those relationships and they are your friends at some point, they'll probably ask you if they can read your material. Um, I, you know, I, and that, that was, that was the case, uh, you know, that I can specifically think of with Alejandro Bruguez. Um, you know, I remember when we were making Nightmare Cinema, I remember overhearing you and he talk about some of the submissions you were getting from agents and such and complaining about, you know, oh, I can tell in X number of pages and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I was like, oh, gosh, like that, that, that would terrify me if I would give them one of my scripts and, and have them feel that way in the first 10 pages. Uh, you know, so it, it definitely had a, a chilling effect. But I remember when he watched the work print of my movie, The Au Pair, uh, and when it was done, he was like, that was pretty good. I've never read your stuff before. Do you have any scripts you can send me? And, you know, lo and behold, I sent him two and he really liked them and he directed one of them. So, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I guess the, the answer is it'll happen when it's meant to happen. And it's, ha- it'll happen when I think your peers that you are, are meeting feel that they're at a level where you could potentially work together in a, a fruitful creative partnership. And when it's a think, level Rick, of trust. Yeah, it's a level of trust as well. You have to be with someone and be close enough to them to be able to know that your opinion really does matter. Oh, yeah. That, that it's not going to be, you know, there's a pretty good chance you're going to like the material. You understand how this person's mind operates and their interests and and all of that. Um, but um it really has to develop to a level where someone is willing to put in several hours of work on your behalf as a favor. Yeah. I mean, just, just to give some people some perspective, you know, when I was, when I was running my development position and we had uh, folks, including our, our engineer, Chris Price, uh, who would read scripts for us, we'd give them the whole day to read a script. You know, they would they would read the script in the morning and they'd write their coverage up in the afternoon, all their thoughts on the script in the afternoon. Uh, And that was the expected turnaround. So when you're asking someone to read a script and give you feedback, you're asking them to take an entire day out of their schedule to work on something for you. And, you know, if you're going to do that, you better be damn sure the script is is great. I mean, that's that's what your friends are for. Your peers are for, I think, find a, a writer's group of writers who are at the same level that you're at have them rip the script apart, get it the best it can be, have your agents and managers rip it apart. And then only then, if you really, really feel like you need to take a swing with a, a filmmaker that you're admire and are friends with, maybe then it's ready. But, but, you know, you gotta, you gotta really stress test it first. Yeah. And uh, the shortest answer to this question is read Josh Olson's article. You can <laughs> You can Google it. It really is called No, I Won't Read Your Fucking Screenplay. But it goes into great detail why he gives that answer. It's one of the best articles that I've ever read. And he told me, I remember when I met him at the master's dinner, he said, uh, that's going to be on my tombstone. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For better or for worse. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. 
Uh, Bark Eater Productions uh, asks, Mick and Joe, when you guys write a script, do you write it with an audience in mind or for yourself? Well, you have to write it for yourself first, but you are always cognizant that you're writing a screenplay meant to go up on the screen, meant to be seen by people. It's not an act of onanism or masturbation. This is, you're making a, a movie and it's not like writing an essay for a literary magazine, but it's something meant for mass consumption that's gonna cost millions of dollars. That being said, your greatest passion is telling a story and putting it onto the page to be able to be a blueprint for that movie and more than a blueprint. But I see that that's a question coming up that we'll get into. But um, but yeah, I mean, it has to be something that engages you or you're a hack trying to make a commercial movie. Um, <laughs> right. Well, I think this gets into that age-old argument about chasing trends with screenwriting. If you're, if you're, if Get Out just came out, and then you're going to try to write the next Get Out, you're already behind the curve. Uh, and and I think I really do think chasing your passions um, is the best way to write a compelling screenplay, regardless of commerciality. There's there's plenty of great scripts that function as writing samples that get your jobs on commercial movies. Yeah. We talk about that. We talk about that a lot that if you write a great script, even if it doesn't meet what the marketplace is looking for, it can open tremendous doors for you. It's happened to you. It's happened to me that uh, I've written a lot of scripts that have never been made, but they impacted on, on the progression of my career. Exactly. So, so I think, you know, write, write it for yourself first. Uh, and, and, you know, but, but if you're really concerned about the market, you know, before you sit down and write it, pitch some people, the ideas, pitch, pitch your friends the ideas and see how they respond. And, and if it sounds like they're as excited as you are about it, then maybe you're onto something, but I think it still starts with finding something that's going to entertain and excite you the most, because that's where you're going to do your best work. Yeah, I mean, when I start a, a new project, I am almost giddy with it. When I'm typing, I'm just, you know, laughing with glee or just really enjoying it and and imagining it on a screen, imagining it coming to life with actors and locations and production values and shots and and just the mechanics and the emotional portrayal by the actors. All of those things are in my head. And uh, that's the only way I know how to write. But it means I come into my office in the morning, I knock out seven or eight or nine pages before lunch, write another three or four after lunch. And I feel like I put in a great day's work because you know, I've been productive in a way that I'm excited about. Yep, yep. No, after I, all these years, yeah. And I, I, that's, that's what keeps you going. Um, all right, we'll, we'll, and we kind of dabbled on it a little bit, but I think we'll, let's drill down into this next question. Carlos Sandoval asks, as the art form of screenwriting craft evolves, do you work on the script uh, to be a great reading experience as well as a document for the filmmaker to visualize the whole picture? Well, there's a lot to say about that uh, yes. because it has to be a compelling reading experience. The whole point of writing a screenplay is to lay the groundwork for the movie, but you also need to engage the actors, you need to engage the producers, you want them to turn the page. It can't just be, 
you know, the alien script, the shooting script for alien is an exception because it's all written in sentence fragments and just very much a blueprint without the personality of the writer reflected so much. But if you have a way with words, if you uh, can put things, your stage directions need to be clean and concise, but compelling as well. It can't mm -hmm. just be a grid of words. It needs to create the desire to turn the next page, to keep turning the pages, to, to feel entertained by the reading experience. But overwriting a script can turn off anybody. Yep. Because um, you, if you have dense blocks of scene descriptions or action descriptions, I learned early on when I, I wrote the, the first screenplay for Batteries Not Included for Steven Spielberg, I wrote a 140 page script. That's right. And it was long. And I was a writer because I wrote this very writerly screenplay that had yeah. lots of brilliant descriptions and, and things that don't necessarily matter. And Stephen said to me after I turned it in, he said, and I've told this story before, but, and it's embarrassing, but I'll do it again. He said to me, Mick, this took me three sittings to read through. Oh, I gulped. And then he said, and that's not a good thing. No. I took that to heart and I took it home and ended up turning it into a hundred page screenplay that got the film green lit. So it, it's paying attention and knowing when criticism is, is welcomed and who to receive it from. But the idea of it being concise, but entertaining is really important. A director doesn't want to read uh, directions on how he's going to shoot the movie. Sure. That's up to him. You're a screenwriter, uh, maybe you direct as well, but it's a director's job. And, you know, the people, the creative people involved in the making of the movie need to know the basics, but let them do the heavy lifting on the creative uh, fulfillment of your dream. Yeah, it was something that, uh, I struggled with when I first moved to LA because you get trained for so many years in film school uh, that the script is a blueprint and, and to write very lean. And uh, when I started in development and I started reading, you know, professional and semi-professional screenplays uh, that were going around the marketplace, I was so surprised to see how untrue uh, that, that kind of push from academia was. Um, and it is very much what Nick's talking about, where it's this hybrid of uh, short, effective writing, uh, but very compelling writing. Um, and those tend to be the best screenplays. And it is it really is a magic balance that you kind of have to learn uh, by doing and reading. And, um, you know, it's it's not it's not like any other form of writing. It really yeah. isn't. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really much more it's than a it's more than a blueprint. And, and as you can say, as a former development executive, sure. most screenplays, and I do mean most, are semi-literate. Yeah. And when you're reading a script filled with mistyped words and misspelled words and wrong uses of, of different contractions, uh, mixing them up, your and your, you know, um, <laughs> it's annoying and distracting and it keeps you from having the reading experience that you need to enjoy a screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing people realize too, in terms of that is 
the sheer volume of submissions that production companies are sifting through. I mean, you really have to make sure your script is at such a high level and is so inherently readable because you're facing competition from hundreds of screenplays, even at a small development shop. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, they, it's, there are high entry barriers in Hollywood for a reason. Uh, and, and this is certainly one of them. And, uh, you know, writing, writing one draft of a script and flinging it out to people is not necessarily going to get the job done. Uh, there's, there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a great question and I thought those were great, great answers, Mick. Thank you. Uh, Joshua Khan writes when writing a script, uh, is ending up with a plot hole for the sake of the story's pace better than making sure there are no plot holes at the risk of dragging your story down and explaining them all. Um, I, I can't say that I've, I've run into that. You know, I start on page one and I go through to the end. Sometimes I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going, but usually not unless I'm writing it on assignment where you have to lay out all of the steps that your story is going to take. Right. Um, if there's a pothole, write the script, finish the script. If there's right. a pothole, fill it, yeah. but don't drag it down with a two page scene of exposition that explains it all. Yep. This is movies. These aren't books. Yeah. You know, put, put some thought into that. And with your ingenuity, if you're a good storyteller, you can fix a plot hole. You can, you can put tar in it and tamp it down and smooth it over and yep. no one will notice. I think, I think there's three movies that I can, I can give as an example as to this, this problem and finding a good balance. Uh, and, you know, I think those three movies are Star Wars and New Hope, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, and Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Uh, and I can see Mick rolling his eyes about me talking about Star Wars, but here's, no, here's my I'm point. Grinning. Here's my point. I think the, the Phantom Menace stops to try to explain every little detail and excruciating detail, uh, and it gets bogged up in all these politics. I think The Force Awakens was like a reaction to the prequels, and they were like, let's not talk about politics at all and focus solely on emotion. And then I think the original Star Wars trilogy kind of kind of walked the balance the best between plot holes and emotionality. I think you can coast over a lot of plot holes if your characters are compelling and the emotions are running high. Um, but that doesn't mean you should coast over all of them. Yeah, you shouldn't <laughs> ignore them. You can fix them. And yeah. usually, usually it's a lot easier than it seems. And, uh, you know, I, that, but I, I'm not speaking from experience. I haven't come across one, you know, I've, I've directed a lot of material that other sure. people have written and material that I've written and plot holes are things that are gaping. Uh, but, but I've not really had that problem because either with a screenwriter like uh, Stephen King or, or Matt Vane or somebody, you know, we find these things together. And especially if there's more than one person involved, it's like, well, why don't we blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yep. It's usually as simple as that. So it may just be finish your script. If there's a plot hole, let some friends of yours who are willing and eager to read your script, <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, help you out in that regard. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I completely agree. They're going to be able to see those holes more easily than you are. 
And in a lot of cases, they're going to be able to provide ideas that you never probably would have thought of to fix it. So um, I agree. Uh, All right. Gary asks, question for you both. Do you memorize the entire script before shooting a feature? Easy answer, no. Um, I'm very familiar with a screenplay, especially if I wrote it. Uh, And I've read it over many times, but memorization is really not a problem, especially because you're never shooting in sequence. So you're not going from page one to 100. You're going from page six to page 32 to page 75 and all over the place. So it's just knowing what leads to uh, what scene leads to each other. And for me, I do a very um, specific breakdown of what we're doing. You're given your production schedule and each weekend before I start the week's shoot, I will go over and I will shot list everything. I won't storyboard, but I will have a good idea of what we're doing for the whole week. And now often I won't even look at that shot list, but I will have shot it in my head and know what we can do, what we have time for, what we can't do, how we should approach it and discuss it with the DP, people like that. Have your conversations with the actors so everybody is is prepared when you get on the stage. But um, I may find out at the end of the day, I'll look at my shot list and go, oh, I shot every one of those shots without even thinking about it. Or another day, it's like, I didn't shoot a single one of those shots the way that I'd shot listed it. Because yeah. you need to, if, if you memorize everything from A to Z, then you're kind of painting yourself into a corner. If you know what you're doing and what's coming along, then you can roll with the changes or, or adapt to a good idea that might've come out of left field and, and really be able to catch magic in a bottle that wouldn't already be there in, in the screenplay, for example. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think the, the, the old adage, uh, you know, how do you eat a whale one, one bite at a time? Right. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that works. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the answer to that question. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the same. I think the, the night before I review the coming day's work and make sure my shot list is ready and make sure I understand where the characters are supposed to be emotionally and what my, what I want the blocking to look like. And, and, you know, you tackle the next day. Uh, yeah. It's, it's As a too, director, too, you, you've, you've got to know better than anybody else. Yep. What, what the work is because yeah. everything is interwoven and the individual uh, actors or crew people or, or uh, creatives involved, they are just strands within that web and you are the weaver. And so you're the one who has the answers to all the questions. Yep. Yep. Well, speaking of answers to those questions, Josh writes, <laughs> Mick and Joe, when writing and directing, do you have a running creative kill list in your head? Uh, <laughs> Or do you come up with ways to kill off your characters while working on the individual project? So Mick, do you, uh, do you uh, have like a little notebook of ways to kill people that you just carry around with you or? Uh, I do not. Now <laughs> for me, the kills, uh, the creative kills are not the raison d'etre of, sure. uh, of horror filmmaking. Sure. Uh, and you know, that's in the writing process. 
And of course you want to do something, you know, imaginative. When we did Valerie on the Stairs, for example, uh, yeah. my adaptation of a, an idea by Clive Barkers um, for Masters of Horror, there's a kill where a creature reaches into a guy's mouth and pulls his his skeleton out of his body, oh, basically. Yeah, and it was <laughs> it was great to realize that with the guys at KNB and the makeup. Yeah, guys. yeah, and that was really fun. I hadn't thought of it before. It was something on a page that Clive had written, and then I'd embroidered when I wrote the screenplay. Sure, and and then. You take it to KNB and they say, well, wouldn't it be great if we did this? Yep. So it's, it's a collaborative thing. And if you're making Friday the 13th movies where the kills are the reason to make the movie, that's something else. But I've never made a movie like that. But even then, though, I still think it's, it's a, a, a bit of circumstance, right? You know, I was, there was a uh, project that we were very close on that was at uh, Crypt TV a couple of years ago. And they had a, a creature that was like a, a tree monster. And, uh, you know, we had a, a scene where we had two characters in a car with a convertible and the convertible was up. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if a branch came through the roof of the car and like went through a guy's head and then the tree ripped him out of the car, right? Uh, which which would have awesome. been, yeah, oh, it would have been awesome. But like, uh, but, but I never would have come up with that had someone not given me the, the pretense of characters in the woods with a tree monster, you know, right. like, I, I'm <laughs> so I, I think, I think it's the, it's the circumstances that dictate it. And then beyond just, I think, creative fertile ground of here are a couple story elements come, come up with, with an idea. I think you're right. Like production, uh, brings real practical, uh, we can't do this or we can do this or how could we do this that you have those conversations with your artisans and then they come up with even better ideas um you know there's on on the netflix movie you know alejandro uh we had to we had to work through for a myriad of reasons locations uh you know studio notes uh budgetary we had to come up with kind of take a scene that was in the script as one thing and turn it into something else. And I think where we eventually got by kind of pitching ideas back and forth and, and dealing with the realities of production, I think he came up with something really cool. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something, I think it's something that's constantly evolving. It's, it's, it's too uh, organic and evolving to just be like, Oh, it's in a notebook and that's the way it's going to be, you know? Well, necessity is the mother of invention Yes, for a reason. Uh, but the the easy answer to that question is story always comes first. Yep. Let those creative deaths come out of the circumstances of the story rather than come up with creative deaths and trying to plug them into your story. Absolutely. All right. Enough screenwriting for today. <laughs> Enough of that shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know we could talk about it for a long time, but uh, and uh, there, will be, there will be other AMAs for that. Yeah. Uh, Rude Art 21 asks, why is it that films of John Carpenter's often go unappreciated until years later? What do you think about John's work that, that resonates, you know, the thing being, I think, probably the prime example? Uh, well, uh, you know, John is a great film artist. And, you know, when you do something new, sometimes it's not popular at the time of its release. There yeah. are countless examples of great classic movies 
that were not successful when they came out. And so sometimes it just takes an audience a while to catch up to them. John is always questing to do something new. Right. And he's not riding the wave. He's not surfing a wave that's already there. He's churning up the waters himself. And when you are a, a creative artist in the world of cinema, in which a project takes a year to make once it's green lit, and then to come out onto the screen within a year or two, um, you're not going to be in the same lake as the trends are. Right. And so a guy like John, who's so iconoclastic and whose films are so easily identifiable, you know, he's doing new stuff. And it's not always with a consideration of box office. He's very much a, a confident filmmaker who knows what he wants, knows what he wants to make. So it takes time. And, you know, everybody, no matter how successful they are, they make movies that never become successful, that are forgotten. But in the case of John, he's made so many movies that it just took a while for people to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the perfect answer. Um, well, on the, on the other side of the John Carpenter coin, uh, Ian writes, on the latest postmortem, Jamie Lee Curtis mentioned you were close to Halloween producer Deborah Hill. Can you tell us about your friendship with Deborah? Yeah, it, it started um, when I was at Avco Embassy and John and Deborah were making The Fog. Ah. And, you know, Deborah was somebody who I would talk to a lot, John as well. We've been friends since then, but um, Deborah would be more accessible when I would talk to her in business and the like. And then um, on Escape from New York, same thing. Uh, you know, I worked with them on five different movies. I was the unit publicist on Halloween 2. And Deborah not only was producer of all those movies, she co-wrote Halloween with John. She co-wrote The Fog with John. Yep. Um, Halloween 2 uh, with John. So she was a true producer in every sense of the word. And I would deal with her more often because a director is busier than a producer in terms of being able to set up meetings and the like. And we just hit it off really well. We were very friendly, maybe not as close as Jamie said in, in our conversation. <laughs> sure. And if the question is, did I have an affair with Deborah Hill? That is a definite no. But, <laughs> I but don't think was... that was the intention. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think, but... you know, I think with Deborah, it's just, you know, obviously John's name gets so overshadowed on, on those movies. And I think there's been such a great and rightfully so push in the last few years to, to bring Deborah's name up with the success of those movies. Um, she was and, a great producer and yeah. a great, great lady, very smart and sweet and knew what she was doing. And, um, you know, terrific uh, writer as well. And, you know, John and Deborah were romantically involved for a while in the right. days of their right. together. And they both ended up doing incredibly well. Deborah did really well as a producer. She had terrible um, health issues come up that, and passed away years ago, and it was quite tragic. But I will treasure that, uh, that work relationship and friendship that we had. She was a really special person. I agree. Uh, well, Mick, that brings us to the end of another Ask Mick Anything. Well, there's a lot of anythings in there. So if you have questions... <laughs> 
you can send them to Joe and he will give you the direction. Yes. Uh, send them prefer, preferably with the hashtag ask Mick anything, uh, please send them or AMA, but please send them to us at, uh, Mick Garris PM on Twitter or Instagram, or to me at Joe Russo tweets on Twitter, or Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. And, uh, we will field the best of the best for the show and, and put them in front of the maestro. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to, to another one, but, uh, before then, Mick, have a very happy Halloween. Yes, we are in the middle of October as we speak, and we've got days and days to celebrate this magical time. Absolutely. All right. Uh, lots of hocus pocus to watch between now and then. So. <laughs> and writing the bullet. The other. Oh, yes, Halloween. yes, yes, yes. And writing the bullet. Writing the bullet. Got to plug right. it all. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Thanks everybody. You. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.